to the Every Word Podcast. All right. Hello, everybody, and welcome again to the Every Word Podcast. It's great to be with all of you another week, and uh, we are exploring Genesis once again this week. Uh, We are actually at the halfway point in Genesis, finally. So uh, we just got another 25 chapters, and we'll be done with Genesis. Yes. a pretty exciting episode. So thank you everybody for tagging along uh, this far with us. And we hope that you continue on with us till, till the end of Genesis. So, all right. Well, with that being said, like I said, it's a Genesis chapter 25. Today we're going to be reading to start out uh, verses 1 through 11 in the New Living Translation. So verse 1. Abraham married another wife, whose name was Keturah. She gave birth to Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan was the father of Sheba and Dedan. Dedan's descendants were the Asherites, Letushites, and Laamites. Midian's sons were Ephah, Epher, Hanak, Abida, and Elda, uh, these were all descendants of Abraham through Keturah. Abraham gave everything he owned to his son Isaac, but before he died, he gave gifts to the sons of his concubines and sent them off to a land in the east away from Isaac. Abraham lived for 175 years, and he died at a ripe old age, having lived a long and satisfying life. He breathed his last and joined his ancestors in death. His sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah near Mamre in the field of Ephron, son of Zohar the Hittite. This was the field Abraham had purchased from the Hittites and where he had buried his wife Sarah. After Abraham's death, God blessed his son Isaac, who settled near Be'er Lahai Roy in the Negev. All right, AJ, go ahead. All right. Well, thanks, Brother Ethan, for the reading. And I'll go ahead and get started. I don't have too many verses, or excuse me, too many notes on these first few verses. Um, But we see here in the first four verses that Abraham had another wife named Keturah. Um, And at a glance, it kind of seems odd that Abraham would marry another wife after Sarah's death. Um, One for the fact, you know, he loved her so much. Um, But the other one being, you know, he's at a very advanced age, we assume at this point. However, it's not stated uh, the time really between Sarah's death and Abraham's marriage to Keturah. Uh, Given Abraham was about 137 years old when you do the math when Sarah died, and we know that he lived, according to verse 7, to 175, doing the math, that gives you about 38 years. Um, So, you know, he had 38 years left in his life, essentially, after uh, Sarah died. So makes it a little bit more understandable for him to potentially have remarried. Plus, um, having having sons and increasing your lineage was definitely a very, um, I guess, popular thing, very common thing. Let me put it that way. Very common thing to do back in this in this time frame. So um, I'm sure Abraham was trying to do that as well. Um, Keturah is not mentioned that I could find in any other place in the Bible, uh, with the exception of uh, she is brought up in First Chronicles chapter one during a genealogical breakdown. But other than that, um, she just kind of pops up here out of the middle of nowhere. 
Um, skipping down to verses five and six, they provide us with some clarity on Abraham's offspring and his, uh, you know, quote, son, so to speak. Um, so note the verbiage in verse five that Abraham gave everything he owned to his son, Isaac. Um, note the possession of his son showing Abraham was very directly possessive of Isaac. And that shows us the importance of Isaac and that he was the one who received Abraham's spiritual inheritance to be his true heir. Uh, compare this to the wording in verse 6. Now his other sons, uh, now they are considered to be uh, sons of his concubines, showing a less possession on the side of Abraham. It's also interesting since this classifies Keturah as a concubine, concubine, excuse me, thus showing that Abraham, I guess in his eyes, he really only had one, quote, wife, or a, maybe a wife that he truly loved, and that was uh, reserved for Sarah. Um, it's also important to see that all of the concubines uh, were blessed with gifts before they were sent away. See, traditionally, in traditional settings uh, such as these, concubines were treated really as lesser wives, and the children they bared bore, whatever the terminology is, uh, would really not receive any inheritance. They weren't entitled to anything as being the sons and daughters of concubines. Um, and while they didn't technically inherit the promise of Abraham, Abraham was very, still very faithful and generous to give them uh, what he could um, You know, when they were born and when they were, I guess, ushered off. Um, so note who's back in verse nine. I found this very interesting. So verse nine says that, you know, his sons, Isaac and Ishmael. So Ishmael's back, um, you know, the son of Sarah's handmaid, Hagar, he, he pops back up here. Um, and also I find it interesting. We just got through talking about how the sons of the concubines were sent away with gifts and all these different things. Remember when Ishmael and Hagar were sent away, they were really only sent away with basically food and water. The Bible did not spell out. That they were, you know, blessed with many gifts or anything like that um they really weren't showered with anything like i said with the exception of just their necessities and yet he is the son uh, you know uh, out of all these sons that were born he and isaac the one are the ones that came back and decided to bury their father uh in the cave of Machpelah. So it made me kind of ponder the question, why would he come back of all of all of these people? Why would he come back? Because, you know, my my first thought, I guess, if I put myself in Ishmael's shoes, I'm like, you know, I, I'm the one that's been treated the worst. You know, I'm the one I didn't get I didn't get fancy gifts when I left. You know, I was basically just kind of ushered out uh, with everything that I necessarily needed. And, you know, why did these two, why did these two kind of pair back up again, you know, when, when there was a little bit of animosity uh, between them uh, the last time they were together? And perhaps it's because that they're the only two sons that really received a promise from God because they were born of Abraham. You know, Isaac's promise is the inheritance of God, of, of Abraham's promise. And Ishmael's promise is, again, because he was the seed of Abraham in a time when Abraham and Sarah lacked faith. Uh, both were on a path to be blessed and formed into a mighty nation so maybe maybe and again this is a little bit of conjecture so you know, i don't have anything to back it up but maybe this was their way of honoring the man that you know you could say paved the way for their respective promises you know had that had it not been for abraham they would not have the promises that they have uh, set up for them in the rest of their life 
And going down to verse 11, it's interesting to see that the place Isaac settles after his father's death is actually near the land named by his father's first concubine. And we just got through talking about her, Hagar. Uh, Hagar named the well where God met her, uh, Bir Lahai Roy, um, which I believe is the God who sees me. I believe that's what that translated to, if I remember correctly. It's the I think it's the the well of the, the God. Who the sees well me. of the God who sees me. Thank you. Th- thanks for the. I knew I was like I know I'm close. Um, yeah. <laughs> I was like good. I'm, I'm almost one. there. Um, <laughs> so, but anyway, you know, and it's I think it's. In, something to point out you know in our times of grief and sorrow which i'm sure isaac was experiencing during this time immediately following his father's death um in our times of grief and sorrow you know when we're at our lowest we always must remember you know we have a god who sees us so no matter what you're going through no matter how low life may seem in the in the moment there's you know god always sees you he's never lost sight of you so um with that that's really all I've got on those first 11 verses. So I'm going to turn it over to my buddy, Ethan. Go ahead, brother. Hey, uh, great thoughts, AJ. I really appreciated you tying in the uh, Isaac going to Bear Lahai Roy, where uh, Hagar names that well, uh, tying that into there. I, I saw that and, and I couldn't make an immediate connection. So thank you for bringing that out. Um, so I guess... I'll jump into this. So we find out that Abraham married Keturah. And uh, one thing that is interesting from the the text is that it's actually really unclear when the marriage took place. We know that Abraham was quite old. In fact, uh, Hebrews 11 looks back on Abraham and says when Isaac came along, says Abraham was as good as dead. And so we know that Abraham had sons with Keturah and these concubines. And so it it makes you look back at Abraham and Keturah and ask the question, when did Keturah come along? Was she before Sarah? Was she after Sarah? You know, if she were uh, after Sarah, that means Abraham was still able to have children, which seems like the word of God is seeming to contradict that. And if Keturah came before, it just makes things a little bit different on, okay, why was Abraham so intent on finding a son? And so it's important to kind of look at the evidence a little bit to figure out, okay, you know, where do we think that Keturah, these concubines, when, when did they come along in the story? So Abraham himself says in Genesis 17 and 17, that when God tells him that uh, they're going to have a son, he, meaning Abraham and Sarah are going to have a son. He laughs and he says this, can a, can a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? And so Abraham is implying that at a hundred years old, you're not supposed to be able to have children. And so God works a miracle right between Abraham and Sarah. And uh, they, the, you know, Sarah conceives, they, she, she births Isaac and so, but this is a miracle that's worked, uh, that was worked by God for both Abraham and Sarah. At least that's what Abraham is implying here, that he should not be able to have children at his age. And so when we read this about Keturah and these concubines, they have sons, it makes us think that more than likely Abraham's not having sons with Keturah and these concubines 
after Isaac. It, it really implies that uh, Abraham has these wives and concubines before Sarah gives birth to Isaac. And so, uh, you know, considering this evidence, I, I really think that Abraham married Keturah before Sarah uh, became pregnant with Isaac. And I, I find this really interesting to look back at the the life of Abraham and Sarah and wonder, you know, okay, well, why was why were Abraham and Sarah so intent on having a son? If, if Abraham had many sons to choose from for his blessing, his inheritance to pass on through um, that, that chosen kind of descendant, he had plenty of options. So, so why make this big deal for these previous chapters on, on getting a, a son through Isaac? And I, and I really believe it's because God is intent on including Sarah in the line of the blessing. And that, that is Jesus, right? Being part of that lineage where the Messiah is going to come from. And so it's, it's God showing that grace to Sarah, that unmerited favor to her. And so I think, I think it's really special and helps us look back at these previous chapters with even more appreciation of how much God wanted to include Sarah, um, in the story of Jesus. So real quick, uh, I won't be too long, but let's talk about concubines. Let's talk about polygamy. Um, Obviously, this is something that's totally foreign to us in our Western culture. But in the Old Testament time, uh, in this particular region of the world, polygamy was very common. Uh, and even among these these heroes of the faith, these Israelite heroes, um, obviously we have Abraham here. Jacob is another one who had multiple wives. King David had multiple wives. And uh, King, King Solomon, he had lots of wives, lots of concubines, famous for the the number of wives and concubines uh, that he had. And so for for us in our culture, it, it really has this this shock value to to go back and, and read these stories and like, oh wow, these people were polygamous. And um, you know, that seems very, very odd, very strange, even even immoral. And um, you know, God really didn't put the foot down in the Old Testament uh, at this point on on polygamy. It wasn't really till Jesus came along. He settles the matter about marriage um, when um, the Sadducees are asking him a question about marriage. And he says in Mark 10 and 6 that God made, uh, God made humanity male and female, one man, one woman from the beginning. And so God's plan for us is to be monogamous, you know, one man, one wife, Adam and Eve, not Adam Eve and, and other women, or, you know, the the phrase Adam and Steve, right? It's one man, one woman, monogamous. That's what God intended marriage uh, to be. And so, since God is the same yesterday and today and forever, obviously, if Jesus is saying this, that this is the way it's supposed to be, and, and anything else isn't what God intended, then that's exactly what he thought in the Old Testament as well. And though he doesn't specifically or explicitly call polygamy out, he's, God is still um, still of the opinion that monogamy is is the way uh, way to go. I think I've brought up this, this passage or this verse in previous episodes, but it comes from Paul's Mars Hill sermon in Acts chapter 17. It's in um, Acts 17 and 30 
But Paul gives a really interesting explanation for um, some of the things that happen in the Old Testament or amongst the Gentiles who don't know who God is. It says this in Acts 17.30, God overlooked people's ignorance about these things in earlier times, but now he commands everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and turn to him. So God overlooked a lot of the things in the Old Testament as revelation and understanding of God and his law and his character and what he desires and what he wants became known as history progressed. And so God to Abraham and to these other Israelite heroes who were polygamists, he is extending a special gift called grace to to them. And he's overlooking the shortcoming and, and maybe even ignorance so that God could ultimately get the glory so that it can be shown that it's our it's our faith and our trust in God that that lets us be part of his kingdom and not necessarily our perfection. And uh and so it's not our own works of righteousness that gets us into heaven. It's obedience to God. And, and Abraham at this point wasn't aware that, that God wasn't approving of that. And so uh, it's important for us when we look back at these old Testament heroes and we see these things and we realize, Oh my goodness, a polygamist is going to be with me in hut and in the kingdom of God. Uh, it, Abraham's going to be there. I'm sure David's I'm sure going to be there. Uh, you know, how do I reconcile this? It's because God's overlooking things because of ignorance and he's extending grace. And uh, it just helps us look at these Old Testament scriptures, these Old Testament heroes, and uh, we should give them grace too, because that's exactly what God was doing as well. So that's all I've got, man. I'll hand it over to you. All right. Well, great thoughts. Um, Great breakdown as well. And, you know, there's there's a there's a great importance in taking time to do things like that, especially on like you said things that Western culture is uh, does not condone whatsoever, like polygamy for for this instance. So, you know, it's great that we take that you you did your research and really did a great job of breaking it down. Um, you know, come kind of from the perspective of the day because um, you know you see a lot of that you see a lot of people that um, try to use scriptures like these uh, against Christians you know when they're trying to maybe testify or, or speak into somebody's life you know they'll throw these scriptures up and say well you know why was this okay then but not okay now and it's important that we know these things and we're able to kind of break those things down and help people to understand because like you said at face value um, it's very confusing but but when you understand it fully and, and understand um, you know the difference between then and now, um, it really, it, it really helps you understand the word and it really helps to, to validate the word. Um, I also really enjoyed the, the breakdown that you had on, on Keturah as well. Um, and, and I've not, I have not heard that perspective, but, um, it's very interesting. You brought out a lot of good points, uh, as far as, you know, um, you know, with the time frame and, and what, you know, and whatnot, um, considering having kids at such an old age, if you kind of take it for face value. So, um, she very interesting person, Katura. Um, like I said, she's not brought up a whole lot. Um, and there's even more theories and, and conversations, um, you know, among theologists about her. Um, I even saw one where they thought that Katura and Hagar were the same person. And had thought that after Sarah, after Sarah had died, um, could, like Hagar, I don't know if her name had changed. You know, I don't know if they thought that her name would change or had changed, but that you know Abraham decided to go back and marry her. Now that 
you know, Sarah had passed. So I, and, and there is no consensus on that whatsoever. So, so don't, don't hear me saying that, saying that that's true. That's just a, that is a idea out there that has been debated among theologists along with many other things. So, you know, there, the Bible is, is incredible. Um, even to this day, for as many years as we have had it, um, we, we still are trying to work out, you know, some things like that. So, um, Anyway, uh, I'll digress and go ahead and get into our next passage of reading. So I'm going to pick up in verse 12 and be reading down through verse 26. So picking up in verse 12, verse 12 says, This is the account of the family of Ishmael, the son of Abraham through Hagar, Sarah's Egyptian servant. Here is a list by their names and clans of Ishmael's descendants. The oldest was Neboeth, followed by Kedar, Adbeel, Mibsam, Misha, Mishma, Duma, Massa, Hadad, Tima, Jetur, Nafish, and Kedema. These twelve sons of Ishmael become the founders of the twelve, ti- twelve tribes named after him, listed according to the places they settled and camped. Ishmael lived for 137 years, then he breathed his last breath and joined his ancestors in death. Ishmael's descendants occupied the region from Havilah to Shur, which is east of Egypt in the direction of Ashur. There they lived in open hostility toward all their relatives. This is the account of the family of Isaac, the son of Abraham. When Isaac was 40 years old, he married Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, from Padan Aram, and the sister of Laban, the Aramean. Isaac pleaded with the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was unable to have children. The Lord answered Isaac's prayer, and Rebekah became pregnant with twins. But the two children struggled with each other in her womb, so she went to ask the Lord about it. Why is this happening to me? she asked. And the Lord told her, The sons in your womb will become two nations. From the very beginning, the two nations will be rivals. One nation will be stronger than the other, and your older son will serve your younger son. And when the time had come to give birth, Rebekah discovered that she did indeed have twins. The first one was very red at birth and covered with thick hair like a fur coat, so so they named him Esau. Then the other twin was born with his hand grasping Esau's heel, so they named him Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when the twins were born. All right, Brother Ethan, what do you have for us on that set of scriptures? Sure. Thanks, AJ. Um, So, Ishmael. Uh, I don't have a lot on him, but I think we we discussed this a few episodes uh, back. But Ishmael had 12 sons, and they become the fathers of the 12 tribes of, of Ishmael. And I find that very interesting, uh, uh, almost like a parallel to the, the 12 tribes of Israel right? as well. And um, so Paul actually uses Ishmael interestingly enough, as a representation of Israel in the book of Galatians. And um, so this this 12 tribes of Ishmael and the 12 tribes of Israel kind of plays in very nicely there. Um, haven't really explored the full idea there, but in Galatians, Paul is explaining to the Gentile believers that they don't have to become Jews to be saved. You know, you don't have to undergo circumcision to be saved. You don't have to not eat pork. Uh, no, it's 
faith in Jesus. It's being born again of water and spirit. Right. That's what um, it it means to to be saved. And so the the old covenant of the law, where there's these specific things that she had to do, um, that w- that was written on stone. Uh, I think that's important. It's written on stone. It's not something that comes from the heart. It's just written on stone. That old covenant is now replaced with a new covenant of law that's written on our hearts. And so it's important for us to make sure that we're, if you're, we're using the Paul illustration, we want to be descendants of of the, the son and, and, and not the son of the, the, the slave woman, which would be Ishmael. So um, just wanted to point that out. So uh, moving on to the story of Rebecca and the birth of Jacob and Esau. So interestingly enough, just like Sarah, Rebecca also initially is barren. And what's really different though with Isaac and Rebecca versus Abraham and Sarah is that Isaac simply just pleads with God and prays to the Lord and God answers his prayer, opens up the womb of Rebecca and, you know, she she conceives. There's not this whole lifelong waiting for the promise to be fulfilled by God. Right. And you know, just some questions that popped into my mind. Did did Isaac have more faith? I, I don't know, but perhaps. I mean, it took Abraham a lifetime of developing his faith in order to get to the point where where God allowed Isaac to arrive. We've we've read that in previous episodes, and really, it took. All the way up to that episode in Genesis 22, where um, he he goes up onto Mount Moriah and takes Isaac up there to be sacrificed to really showcase that he's really arrived in his faith toward God. And so it's taken Abraham a lifetime to really develop that faith. And compare and contrast that to Isaac. We also talked about this in the Genesis 22 episode, but Isaac was demonstrating faith right? as, as a young, younger man, uh, along with his father on Mount Moriah. You know, we discussed how Abraham was quite old, but Isaac was actually probably about 30 years old. Right. He was well capable enough of resisting being bound up, being laid on the altar, to be stabbed and to be sacrificed. And so, you know, Isaac is demonstrating faith along with his father that God is, God's going to make things work out. Hey, I can trust in him. I'm willing to become the sacrifice if that's necessary. And so uh, maybe Isaac had more faith earlier on than, than Abraham did. And, and maybe that was a, just a factor in he, he, goes to God in faith and, and, and God responds. It could be that, or it could just be a simple matter of grace, God's grace, right? He, he decides just to extend that grace to Isaac and Rebecca and allow Rebecca to, to have children. But whatever the reason is, Isaac and Rebecca, they don't have to endure this lifetime of, of, of waiting for, for children. So Rebecca kind of notices some things that are going on inside of her (laughs) and uh, feels like there's a lot going on in here. And uh, (laughs) she may not be fully aware, but she's like, you know, something feels like it's fighting inside of me (laughs) right? (laughs) to the point it's so bad. And, you know, uh, I've been through 
around of my wife being pregnant and uh you know pregnancy isn't fun so but i mean it got to the point where it was so bad that she she goes before god and she says why is this happening to me why is what what's going on inside of there and so um it's very obvious that jacob and esau they were they were quite the the roughhousers right they 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 were already going after it even in the womb and so god tells her that Hey, these descendants are going to be just like what they're doing uh, in there in the room, the womb. They're going to be rivals, and so the two twins—they're they're Jacob and Esau. Uh, she delivers them. Esau's the firstborn comes out, and he's uh, he's hairy, and that's how he gets his name. Esau sounds like the Hebrew word uh, for hairy, mm-hmm. and he also came out very red. And this is actually a foreshadow of our next passage that we're going to read, where. Um, Esau obtains a nickname called Edom, which means red. The other twin is Jacob, which means uh, there's a little bit of debate, but it either means heel or deceiver. And so the, the <laughs> heel is a pretty obvious uh, obvious thing there. You know, he's coming out of the womb. He's holding on to the heel of his older brother Esau like he's like struggling to get out first. Right, And so... Uh, it's demonstrating the, how it's been all the way from conception. These two twins, they're out for each other. Esau comes out first. He comes out on top. He shows himself to be the the be, you know the the better, bigger, better, stronger twin. You know, but Jacob is doing his best to be first. And so, um, because Esau is the older son, he's the one who's going to get the birthright and that's going to be very very important uh coming on in our next passage so um they're going to be fighting over each other from the very get-go from in the womb to when they're born as they grow up and pretty much throughout their lives and even their descendants are going to be uh pitting themselves one against another so that's pretty much all i've got on this passage all right well, a uh, great job as always. Uh, when I was doing the research, um, Isaac is a lot of times pointed out as kind of being the, the quiet patriarch. Like he he is not very verbal. He does not seem to be very verbal in the Bible. Um, he, he does not speak out very much. I mean, that's not to say he doesn't speak at all. But I guess in comparison, when you compare him to J- to uh, Abraham, who had uh, a lot of conversations and a lot of you know opinions, and he did a lot of things, there was a lot of record on him. And then you move forward to Jacob, who we'll get to uh, more later. You know, he he has a lot uh, that goes on in his life. Isaac kind of falls in the middle. Um, he's he's just kind of, I guess, displayed more as a quiet, more com- contemplative, maybe. Um, that's kind of some of the, the uh, visuals that you're kind of being given. So it could be that um, along the lines of what you were saying, you know, in regards to did he have more faith than Abraham? It could have been that maybe, you know, he... He uh, learned a lot from his father's mistakes, you know, all the the different times when Abraham had those moments of weakness in the faith. You know, I'm sure Abraham drilled those things into him, you know, as he was growing up and saying, hey, don't be like me. Don't make the same mistakes that I did. You know, anchor yourself in God. You know, he's always going to provide for you. And we saw a little bit of that. Um, I think it was, yeah, I believe it was our last episode uh, when, you know, we talked about how Abraham was like, do not take my 
my son back to the land that I came from because I want my son to stay here and basically, you know, to keep the ground, so to speak, you know, to keep the progress, maintain the progress spiritually and physically that, that I have worked my whole life to make um, to get to this point. You know, I, I don't want him to have to do any backtracking. So I think that there's a connection there that could be drawn, you know, maybe to say that um, Abraham or not, excuse me, not, not Abraham, Isaac's faith has maybe uh, stepped into another level because of the, the the lessons he learned from his father. So I think that there was a good point there uh, as well. And again, a lot of similarities there between uh, Isaac and Rebecca and Abraham uh, and, and Sarah, you know, and another one too is that, you know, so Abraham and Sarah, they, they had, they did not have twins, but there were two sons talked about quite a bit, Isaac and Ishmael. Um, and they, you know, they, they basically, they were going to be nations that were going to war against each other. Some, you know, very similar thing here, except they're twins. So coming from the same mother, but again, we see that scripture that says they're always going to be at war with each other. So very, very interesting that there's so much commonality and almost reflection in these two stories. Uh, and you know, even in these two generations but i did want to touch on this excuse me um a very powerful statement is made in verse 23 um the latter part of that verse says that your older son will serve your younger son um and I think in the KJV, I don't know that it says son. I think it's more like the younger shall serve, or the older will serve the younger. Um, but it, there, there's a lot of power there because not only will this statement be true in the literal, but it is also going to be, you know, it's also true in the spiritual when you look at it from a certain perspective. Uh, the literal is going to be fulfilled, you know, after the birth of Jacob and Esau, you know, and we, we read more about that. Um, we see more about their lives in the next passage. Um, but, you know, you could also draw this connection too, and I've, I've heard it used this way several times in the fact that, you know, when we're filled with the baptism of the Holy Ghost, uh, we are a new creature in Christ. You know, we become a new man, so to speak. Um, but yet we're still wrapped as so long as we're on this earth, we're still wrapped in a mortal coil, the, the flesh that we were born into. Um, but it is our job, you know, when we receive that infilling of the Holy Ghost, when we become that new man in our spirit that we keep our flesh under subjection. So the older, which in this case, you can make the reference that the older is our flesh, you know, and our foot, what is our flesh? It's representative of our will our desires, the things that we want to do because it pleases me as a human being, it pleases my flesh, that it, you know, the older will serve the younger. It will be obedient to the younger within us, which the younger being representative as the new man, you know, the Holy Ghost being within us, God's divine will for us in our life. That's how we should be. That's how our lives should be set up. We, you know, we need to keep ourselves, our flesh under subjection so that, you you know, when it comes those and we all have those decisions every day that we have to make, you know, maybe, uh, you know, we, we feel conviction to do something in the spirit, you know, by the, the, uh, the will of the Holy Ghost. But yet, you know, it may not be something our flesh would really want to do, you know, something like fasting mm-hmm. or praying or going to a revival, you know, on a, on like your one day off a week or something. Um, but we, you know, we, we, when we get to that point, 
we have to say, you know, okay, flesh, you're going to have to be submissive. You've got to obey because it's the new man. It's the new creature inside of me. It's the Holy Ghost. He is the ruler. I'm going to make him the head of my life. So, you know, so I, I, you know, I wanted to draw on that connection. I've heard that said and and used in ministries uh, quite a few times and uh, it's very powerful. So I just wanted to kind of throw that out there as well. Um, And I had the same notes as, as you as well as as far as the birthright and how important um, that that is going to be. Um, And, you know, and kind of hinting at what you were talking about uh, with Jacob kind of grasping his heel. And it was kind of funny. You said that Jacob could mean, uh, I think you said heel and deceiver. Um, And I looked it up and I saw where Jacob means supplanter. So take your pick. It could mean any of those things. (laughs) but you know normally during the delivery of twins based on what i was able to reach to research you know there is normally a time gap between the birth of these two and usually statistically that's going to be between 10 to 30 minutes um in most pregnancies uh, but we see in this case jacob is literally on the heels of esau um you know showing that you know jacob was grasping the the heel of esau at, at birth um and to your point you know they they were already at war in the womb so to speak jacob was trying to do everything that he could to ensure he was the first one out because he was so he he was he wanted that birthright so much and i found that interesting and i and and i guess just Another thing I find interesting just in a general concept is this idea of almost like a, I don't know if you want to call it consciousness or some kind of something where these kids were in the womb, but they they were fighting. I don't know if they knew what they were fighting about. But it's just interesting, like this this war started before you would think there was even a level of consciousness on either one of them. Um, With that, I'm going to hush up now so we can move on. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Good job, man. And siblings don't need a reason to... uh you know, to that's, go after each other. That's true too. You, <laughs> you would, experience. That's, that's the, we both should know that. <laughs> we both should know that. Yep. But well, good job. Good job. I, I really, really appreciate those thoughts there and, um, good stuff. All right. Well, um, we're going to finish off this chapter with our final passage, um, starting in verse 27 and we're going to read through the end of the chapter all right verse 27 as the boys grew up esau became a skillful hunter he was an outdoorsman but jacob had a quiet temperament preferring to stay at home isaac loved esau because he enjoyed eating the wild game esau brought home but rebecca loved jacob one day when jacob was cooking some stew Esau arrived home from the wilderness, exhausted and hungry. Esau said to Jacob, I'm starved. Give me some of that red stew. This is how Esau got his other name, Edom, which means red. All right, Jacob replied, but trade me your rights as the firstborn son. Look, I'm dying of starvation, said Esau. What good is my birthright to me now? But Jacob said, first, you must swear that your birthright is mine. So Esau swore an oath, thereby selling all his rights as the firstborn to his brother, Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and lentil stew. Esau ate the meal, then got up and left. He showed contempt 
for his rights as the firstborn. All right, AJ, take it away. All right. Appreciate the the reading there, Brother Ethan. I have got a decent amount of notes, but I'm going to try to be as as concise as possible um, so we don't run too long. But I want to pick up in verse 27 and 28. Uh, so here we see we've kind of got a little bit of a time skip. We're, we're further ahead in time. We don't know the exact age of, of the boys at this point. But now we know they're basically old enough to start taking on some, you know, some uh, daily task, I guess you would say, um, that, that would be you know, going on at this point in time. Esau takes up, you know, what's uh, probably a more traditional profession of men based, you know, in this time, uh, being a hunter and outdoorsman. Um, And this is probably a good reason why Isaac showed more affection for Esau than Jacob. Uh, And then on the other hand, Jacob takes up a less traditional role, basically being a homemaker and a cook. And you could assume that because he was probably home a lot more where Rebecca was, that's where Rebecca develops a lot of favoritism toward Jacob. Um, and this is pro- this is from what I remember the first instance in the Bible where we really find favoritism of children uh, among parents, like true parents. I'm not talking about the Sarah and Hagar business, but um, you know when Isaac received the promise of Abraham, he still uh, while while Abraham received the promise of uh, excuse me, I cannot talk. While Isaac received the promise of Abraham, he still loved Ishmael. Unlike here, uh, we see a little bit more of a clear divide between the affection of the parents uh, between uh, towards their children. Uh, down in verse thirty, we we see that. Esau's other name was uh, Edom, meaning red. And based on how this is kind of uh, worded, you know, the red kind of is derived from the red stew, even though, you know, it's also said he was he was redheaded uh, when he was born. So but if you kind of run with the thing of, you know, if if he got the Edom uh Edom nickname from uh, the Red Stew, and we we know what kind of happens with this. Um, you could actually make a connection there because the descendants of Esau actually were named the Edomites. Therefore, you could kind of draw that connection that the name of the descendants of Esau were derived from an element that consisted of one of Esau's biggest mistakes. Um, so I kind of found that interesting. Um, the next verse, verse 31, uh, shows that there is a mental difference. You can kind of pick up on this. There, there's a bit of a mental difference between Esau and Jacob. Uh, Esau is definitely more so depicted as a man of brawn. He's, he's more of like a, you know, not much of a contemplator, more of a ghosty act, you know, more instinctual probably kind of guy. Uh, in contrast, Jacob uh, was not the manliest man, we can assume, uh, but we can also tell by by the way, you see he capitalizes on this opportunity in verse 31. Uh, you can see that by the way it's worded. He uses his mind and he sees that this is this is the time to finally seize what he's been after since basically his birth. And that's the birthright of Esau. And this is somewhat corroborated if you read in the King James Version of, of verse 27, backing up a couple of verses, where it says that Jacob was a plain man. And if you interpret that, plain probably referred to being more even-tempered, unlike his brother who might have been more of a man of emotions, who let kind of his current state and his emotions cheat him out of his birthright. And we'll, we'll 
kind of read more about that here in a minute. Um, verse 32 is, is very powerful, and that's the one where it says, Look, I'm dying of starvation. What good is my birthright to me now? Um, because it shows how vulnerable we can become sometimes with something that is so important to us. Uh, the birthright in this day uh, this day and time, just kind of break that down a little bit, we, we throw that word around quite a bit, uh, was literally a firstborn child's greatest possession. It meant that he was entitled uh, to the fortunes, the blessings, and everything, basically any good that could come from his father um, that that could be that would be passed down he would have basically first claim to this um, Esau until this point and was in line to I mean theoretically you know I guess you know if you want to do like an alternate universe kind of deal um, he would have I, I would assume been in line for the promise um, so you know you think about it if things had not transpired the way they did uh, we could have been talking about the the patriarchs Abraham Isaac and Esau I mean who knows um, but as we said Esau was a hunter and an outdoorsman. Uh, you know, there's really no way I would think that Esau could have truly been dying of starvation as it's kind of uh, written out in verse 32. You know, an outdoorsman of this time, he would have had the skills to have cooked what he caught, forged for food long before he was in a state of dying. I mean, this basically sounds like he kind of went just for hunting for the day and he came back later that day. It does not sound like he'd been out for that long. Um, more than likely, this is more of an over-exaggeration on Esau's part. And we've all done that, you know. I know I've looked at people before and been like, man, I'm I'm about to die of starvation when, in fact, I probably ate like three hours ago when I'm just hungry. <laughs> um, you know, we all over-exaggerate, especially when it comes to food. Um, oh, yeah. You know, so again, this is probably an over-exaggeration on his part because he wanted something that was convenient at the time, a hot pre-made bowl of soup. Um, and Esau's statement there, the latter part of 30, I believe it's 31, no, it was 32. Um, what good is my birthright to me now? The promises and blessings of God, the Holy Ghost within us, they are far, far more valuable than any birthright in this world. But sometimes we're just as guilty you know, sometimes we want to give up at the first moments, at a moment's notice uh, of all that we are set to inherit spiritually just to satisfy our flesh for just one moment. Esau didn't, he didn't even bargain. Here's the thing. He didn't even bargain for the entire pot. He just wanted a serving. He wanted a bowl full, just something that would tide him over for the moment. Though his flesh may have been satisfied for a few hours, he gave up an internal inheritance for that moment of pleasure, if you will. And we must be so cautious every day and every hour because, you know, the devil's out there placing, you know, you know hot bowls of soup or convenient sins. You know, he's laying snares and traps in our way all the time, looking for us to be caught in a weak moment and be willing to trade in our eternal inheritance for a moment of fleshly pleasure. And, you know, what do we do in these moments of weakness? You know, you might ask, well, we feast upon him and his word. John chapter six, verses 54 and 55, I thought said it so well. 54 says, but anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise that person at the last day for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. So we feast in him. You know, we don't, when we grow weak and weary, we, we don't reach out to this world for nourishment because that nourishment's only going to last us for a 
last season. But then we don't, and it also does not advertise what the cost is. But before we know it, if we take our nourishment in this world, we're going to wind up giving up that which we were promised eternally. So we must feast ourselves. We must feast in Him, feast in His in His Word, in His presence. You know, in the church. You know, anchor yourself to those things, and those will provide you the sustenance that you need to get through this world and through the times that you may be going through. Um, and the last set of notes I have, verse thirty-four, it shows us why Esau was so willing to trade in his birthright, it's because he really didn't value it. Um, you know, as stated before, uh, it was the promise of inheritance and the right. It was even the right to become a family priest. Yet Esau didn't see any value in it, um, only in the immediate satisfaction of his flesh. Um, actually, Hebrews twelve and sixteen calls uh, Esau out as an immoral or godless and in kjv he's actually called out as being profane so you know let us not be like esau and instead value our eternal inheritance let us trust god to satisfy the needs of today so that we can focus on maintaining our promise in eternity so with that being said that's all the notes that i have there i'll turn it over to you brother ethan all right thanks aj great job um I really enjoyed your take on the personalities of Jacob and Esau, and I definitely got the the same thing. And I, I also get this feeling from Jacob that, you know, since he's second place, he he's still very, very ambitious, and he wants to prove himself out in any way that he can and, he, and um, you know, show that he's better than his brother Esau. And so, you know, you have this sibling rivalry here. Definitely, I get that vibe from Jacob. And he is also all about that blessing. And uh, I I find it really interesting. You pointed it out in the previous uh, passage. But, you know, he was fighting to be the first out of of the womb, the first to claim that birthright, that blessing. And here he is again, right? trying to go after it we're going to read the next chapter he's going to go after it again and honestly throughout his life he's looking for this blessing and uh he he, he's just out for that out out for his own his own self to to be blessed himself so definitely get that vibe from from jacob here now um with esau i i kind of feel here that he's just kind of thinking that Jacob's joking here and and think about this dynamic here so you you've got this big older brother everything he touches turns to gold you've got the runt little brother who's you know trying his best right to to prove himself mm-hmm. and the the tendency of the older brother is to not take the younger brother seriously and so when Jacob says, I'll give you soup if you give me your birthright, you got to think Esau's like, okay, whatever, punk, you know, and uh, just think he's joking, right? He he doesn't understand, Esau doesn't understand, like you said, the value that he that his birthright has in his own life. And then as a matter of pride, as a, a matter of just carelessness, you know, he thinks that Jacob's joking because really who in their right mind would give up 
their first their their, their birthright for a bowl of soup. You know, it could be pride, right. it could be this carelessness, it could be just you know, I I, I just this impulse impulse nature. But I, I think maybe a, a an, an alternate interpretation of this is just Esau is not taking Jacob or the birthright seriously. And so that's why Esau is able to swear and say, okay, yeah, I'll give my birthright over to you, whatever, Jacob. Like, yeah, right, stop stop doing this. Just give me the bull suit sort of thing. And so, like you said, um, he swears it away, and Jacob now has claim to that birthright. And we're going to see in the next chapter that he is able to take that away from Esau um, through his father Isaac, and Jacob runs away with the birthright, and um, and in in many ways he's he's justified in in doing that. I also picked up on that Hebrews chapter twelve and verse sixteen passage. I'm I'm actually going to read it real quick, um, just so you get a, a context of how the writer of Hebrews is using it. And so, obviously, this mistake of trading away his birthright was a, a big impact for Esau. And so, the writer of Hebrews is using that mistake to to, to draw another illustration for, for our own lives. So, uh, Hebrews 12, verses 16 through 17 says, Make sure that no one is immoral or godless like Esau, who traded his birthright as the firstborn son for a single meal. You know that afterward, when he wanted his father's blessing, he was rejected. It was too late for repentance, even though he begged with bitter tears. And so what this verse is saying is that sin has irreparable consequences. And that actually, that word there in the Greek for immoral is the Greek word uh, pornos, or sexually immoral, it's where we get the word pornography from. And so even though Esau was was not sexually immoral in this story, the the writer of Hebrews is trying to prove a point. Esau was careless with his promise, and just like Esau was careless with the promise of his birthright, sexual immorality is also being careless with something that is truly priceless in God's eyes. All it takes is one mistake and you've sold something you're never going to be able to regain back and you can seek it with all of the tears in the world you can repent as much as you want but at the end of the day you sold your birthright right and so the the writer is equating sexual immorality uh, immorality with with Esau and also equating sexual immorality with quote godlessness and and what that means there, like you said, profane, it means like a, a lack of being reverential to God or the important things and the holy things of God. And that's exactly what sexual immorality is. So Paul writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 18 through 20, and I'm going to paraphrase it a little bit, but he, he warns the church to flee from sexual sin. Sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Right. You don't belong to yourself. And so 
just like we would make sure to be reverential in a church service or at a funeral or at a wedding, you know, because those are holy things. Those are solemn things in a church service. It's because there's the presence of God. Just like those situations, we must honor God in the temple of our own bodies, which houses the presence of God. So that's what the writer of Hebrews was was trying to say, tying in sexual immorality with, with how Esau traded his birthright. But even then, to just draw an even more general principle, we, we've got to treat the holy things as holy. God does not like the holy things to be profaned. And so, so going to church, it should be a holy thing. It's something that's special and set apart. It's honored. And it's something that you look forward to and it's done faithfully. Uh, daily time with the Lord, that should be holy. You should set that apart every single day and let that be done in, in reverence and in faithfulness. You know, God doesn't want us to confuse the holy things with the ordinary and profane things. We've got to treat the holy things with special respect and with special priority because if we don't, we could end up losing those things just like Esau lost his inheritance. So that's all I got. All right. Well, great job as always. I really liked how you, uh, you really expounded on the Hebrews, uh, the Hebrew scripture that we both had in our notes. Uh, I think that was, you, you did a great job there, especially on the fact of you know, connecting that with the sexual immorality. And, you know, it's one of those things, like you said, no matter how much pleading or begging or crying or repentance that we have, it's something that can't be taken back, just like the birthright with Esau. Um, so it really, it really helps to put that in perspective. You know, there, there are those elements you know, grace, grace is abounding grace and forgiveness. You know, God has that in innumerable measures, but there are still some things even that grace and forgiveness cannot undo, you know, they can cover, but they may not be able to undo. So, um, wonderful thoughts, great way to wrap up the episode, I think. So, uh, as I said, we are at the end of chapter 25. So, uh, as brother Ethan kind of spoke about when we opened the episode, we are officially halfway, technically now halfway over the, uh, the book of Genesis. So it's been a, it's been a long time coming, but I have thoroughly enjoyed it. And I know brother Ethan has as well. And, um, we, we love the feedback that we've gotten from you guys so far about how you've been blessed and how you've received different aspects of different episodes. So we're, we're so thankful for that and we're so proud. So, um, just continue to stick with us as we continue to uh, plow through Genesis and there's a lot more great things in store, I believe, and uh, some other things. So with that, we're going to go ahead and wrap up the episode. So thanks everyone for listening. We hope you have a great rest of your week and we will catch you again next week. See you guys. All right. See y'all.